Welcome to Whisking It All with your host, Angela Esposito, co-founder of Whisk.ai, a food and beverage intelligence platform. We're going to be interviewing hospitality professionals around the world to really understand how they do what they do. Welcome to another episode of Whisking It All. We are here today with Fraser Nagy from Tables.com. Thanks for being here, Fraser. Oh, Angela, so great to have me on. Great to see you again, buddy. Yeah, it's been a while, so happy to have you here. And, um, you know, for for people who don't know, can you maybe walk them through what is Tables.com? Tables is, you know, something special. It's something new. It's not often you can say that, that you're really first to market in this way. But, um, you know, I think as we'll get into it through the conversations, there's a few different ways you can look at it. But inherently, Tables is very, very simple. Um, restaurants are the last industry in the world, if you thought of it from the economic standpoint, to do something yeah. called revenue management, which is the combination of premium seating and dynamic pricing. So think airlines, first class, comfort plus, but Google flights, everything, you know, it's always changing based on supply and demand, hotels, rental car companies, sports, everyone does this. But for restaurants, it's quite simple. You know, we 3D map the inside of their, these beautiful properties. And from a consumer's perspective, I should say, for the first time ever, you're able to upgrade to the seat of your choice. So you want that window seat, you want that booth seat, you like me love rocking up to the bar and getting that great corner spot. Well, it's the most demanded request in hospitality. And yet for whatever reason in the hospitality industry, we do a very poor job of hospitality, giving, you know, a guest, allowing a guest to get the seat they want. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it's funny you mentioned that because I always, when I talk about the hospitality space, I always kind of say, it's always the last to adapt. Like, yes, there's a lot of tech and, and, you know, I know owners get bombarded with tech, but when you think about it, the coolest thing to happen was, you know, open table and reservations. Then since then it was maybe cloud point of sale systems, right? Like, Hey, you don't need all this hardware. You can now do it, you know, on an iPad. And that was cool. But after that, and then, you know, now there's kind of the QR code phase that came back and maybe the, the, you know, ordering, cause there's a lot more online ordering, but really in general, this space is like, quite behind when it comes to adopting tech. So um, it's it's super interesting to see what you're doing and, and maybe to walk someone through it. So let's just imagine uh, I'm a client. Um, I guess, let me ask you this. What cities are you guys available in right now? Yeah, we're, we're you know, we're expanding. We're in Miami. We're in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're in Toronto, Chicago, New York, San Francisco. Oh, wow. Our first Los Angeles properties uh, are going live this week. Uh, so you know, you're, you're going to start seeing this pop up a lot more. Um, but to your point, uh, Tables is a little different how we're going to market. So for those that want to nerd out on that side, um, we have a different a bit of a playbook there. But from a user perspective, um, we're, we're starting by embedding Tables right at the point of the reservation button. So think of that traditional open table. You go on the restaurant's website, go on their Google now, and, you know, wherever that reservation button lives, Instagram. Um, July 2nd, Angela, was, uh, this year was Open Table's 25-year anniversary, 1998, wow. July 2nd. So for 25 years, there has just been this drop-down widget, 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. That is the guest service that you experience, even at the most beautiful, forward-thinking restaurant. So what we do is we create a little web app for every restaurant. And when you click Reserve Now, instead of just sending you right to that Open Table widget or that Resi widget or Seven Rooms, well, now there's this little thing that pops up and says, hey, do you want to upgrade your seat and browse from this beautiful 3D selection, you know, those 4K cameras? Or, hey, you know what? Not for you. No problem. Go to Open Table. 
And that's what's really important is that we're not looking to build another reservation system here where mm. this tables is a guest service platform. And that is what's really, really important. And, you know, we can get more into that. So I love it. I love it. And then I guess I'm already imagining, you know, some, some use cases. I mean, you, you mentioned one, just people who really have a preference and like sitting at the bar or near this corner. I'm imagining maybe sports events, you know, basketball game on hockey game. You want, you want seats, you know, better, you know, closer to the bigger TV or, or whatever it may be. I'd love to hear what are some like other typical use cases you guys are, are seeing? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I joke with some of our investors that um, just roof front or you know, rooftop and um, waterfront tables is a billion dollar marketplace on itself. <laughs> um, and, I, and I don't think I'll be far off when it's all said and done. Um, so right away, anything with a differentiated viewer experience. So take even a little waterfront property in Brooklyn versus a rooftop in Manhattan will both have value, never mind mm. in Los Angeles to Dubai to London. Like you just start adding up how many restaurants are built along water, just, you know, something that most people don't even really consider. Uh, but then you get into different subcategories. Like you said, um, you know, sports bars, huge. There's a huge and growing market of, of very experience driven bars, fine dining, of course. Um, you know, I would call these, you know, large concept, casual fine dining places. Uh, you know, I have never done a pitch and someone hasn't brought up Tao as an example <laughs> of large format restaurants that have really cr created a, a, I would call it a large niche, you know, places that are doing a, a thousand covers a night, very experiential. You see them in every major city and, you know, Tao might be the most recognizable in North America for that type of dining, but they're not alone. There are dozens right. and dozens of hospitality groups that are building those type of concepts. Um, and then eventually there's different waves of adoption. So, you know, we'll get to these even, you know, I, I, my dream, I came from the farm to table, small restaurant format space. Um, and, you know, and maybe they don't have like 10 or 20 dif differentiated table experiences, but they might have two to three. And I think there's, right. a, there's a spot for them later down the road uh, when we move more towards a more traditional marketplace of discovery. Um, but today those are where our, our markets exist. And, you know, you mentioned even live live music to, mm. you know, we have a, we have a Harry Potter bar, um, on the really? platform. Yeah. And, where is and, it? I, I gotta, I gotta hit it up. Where is it? Where, where is uh, Harry Potter bar? And, and I should say this, so they don't, they don't get sued by their lawyers. Uh, <laughs> by, they're, they're technically not supposed to use Harry Potter, but no, it's a really cool concept called the cauldron. Um, they, uh, they have one in New York, they have one in Philly, they have one in Chicago, uh, our New York right. and Chicago locations are live and, but they're also in Europe. I think they're London based and it's all wizard themed. So by the way, Lord That's of the cool. Rings, Harry Potter, you name it, but you can do potion making, alcoholic potion making, and they've designed again, they've designed these spaces to have an experience and you know, where you sit can really impact your date night or your, your friends going out to do this fun experience. So um, we can look at it from all spectrums. It's not just bottle right. service at the at right. towel. You know, you can go down to really cool um, concepts like this. So that's what makes tables definitely special in that regard. Yeah, it's fu it's funny because you think about like you know, if I think about maybe the you know our parents' generation, you 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 typically, I mean, our generation we like to frequent you know a different restaurant every week kind of thing. But if I think about maybe my parents' generation, you'd kind of find the spots you like and you'd go often. But in that there was that preference of table. So it was that same theme of like, you get to know the owner, you kind of go every Saturday or maybe a couple of times a month and you got your, your table. So it's kind of interesting to bring that theme, but to, to new experiences. And you're right, it, it, make or, it can make or break the night, especially if you're, you know, you don't go it often, going out's not cheap. 
traveling, right? So you're in a different city. Maybe you're go- you're only going out for two or three nights. So you know, a third or a half of your trip is going to be based on that restaurant experience and getting, you know, not 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 being in control of your table. That that makes a, a ton of sense. Um, so yeah, tell me a bit about you know, just to take it a step back. I always love to understand, like you know, being a founder myself, like where did the idea kind of stem from, right? Like where where was inception day when you're like, man, this is a problem we need to solve, and then kind of walk me through that journey. Well, just to your point, you know, it's great, great segue question there because yeah. um, you know hospitality has evolved, right? And you know, we'll get into the economics piece of tables where. You know, this is the first dollar an operator has ever seen that has no cost of goods, right? Mm-hmm. So when someone, and it's not that every table's upgrade is paid, we, you know, 35% of our bookings are free and that's an important part of it, of our equation as well. But you know, if someone pays 20 bucks or 50 bucks or hundred dollars for that table, that, that when you're only making 6%, 8%, even 15% margins, that's a major difference when let's say you and I go out for dinner we spend hundred bucks, but they're only making 10, but then we were willing to spend $30 on the table right? with no cost of goods. So, so we'll we'll definitely get into that and what that means, but you, you know, the guest service part is where it starts. Um, and you know, you think about what you just were describing that generational shift, right? You know, dining was an occasion for our parents, you know, And, and, and you know, we can be nostalgic. There's something beautiful about that. They would go out once a month. That was like for families that could even afford that. Like that right. dining was often even an exclusive experience for, for, for many. Um, you know, certainly in the middle class family I came from, my dad was fortunate. He, he would, he remembers he would, but my mom's side never went out for dinner. They were farmers. Like it wasn't a thing. Right. So our generation, when we're now 2023 will officially pass. It was like, because of COVID, but we're going to spend 51 to 52 cents of every food dollar eat dining out now, right? So restaurants will officially surpass. And if you think of that demographic concentration as well, well, that's much higher in cities like New York, Chicago, Miami, like people. So you're, you're aggregating that across a whole, a whole country. Um, never mind this concentration in these urban cities. So like we take dining for granted. So I could get very philosophical about that, but in this context, I think there's obviously a real need. So you know, I used to work, um, I've worked in restaurants since I was 13. Very first job was a banquet hall golf course. I, I had a little bow tie, you know, these little mm-hmm. Italian weddings in my hometown. And, um, but, you know, I ended up dishwashing. I was, I was really, you know, figured out how to make a Caesar salad and deep fry onion rings at a restaurant once as a, you know, I can't even call it a garde manger position. It was <laughs> low, whatever that was. But, you know, I, I really had a gift for the gab and really enjoyed serving, genuinely did, and, and the provenance of food and 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 that the whole storytelling element that came with working in good farm table restaurants. Um, but wherever I was, whether it was working corporate or really good fine dining, you know, or or classic sort of scratch kitchens, you know, we used to get calls all the time. And for four years I worked at this fine dining restaurant as a from sort of 19 to 22, 23 busboy, maitre d', junior server, trying to get promoted. And so I really learned that game, that Tetris game that is reservation management in a busy restaurant. Um, and, you know, we used to get these calls like, hey, it's uh, my anniversary coming up. Hey, we're six for a business dinner. Um, can we have your best table? Hmm. And I used to think, what the fuck is my best table? <laughs> <laughs> and then what is that to you, right? Because everyone has their own different definition. Hmm. Um, there was one that seemingly was the best, but again, we would think like, here's our super VIP. We're going to put them on our best table. And for some reason they were unhappy because it was too drafty. It wasn't this, they wanted to be in a more secluded area. So 
I just couldn't. And then as I got older and started getting into the startup land and, and started reading, thinking about, well, from open table data to national restaurant association data, everyone says this is the most demanded guest service. How could something so simple be so difficult for a restaurant to execute on? Hmm. That's, that's super interesting. And that's crazy when you think about it, like, you know, you mentioned 25 years, like I know open table was, you know, one of, one of the first to do what they did. And at the time it was, you know, revolutionary what they did, really? but it's crazy to imagine that it's already been 25 years. It's making me feel old, but I'm like, wow, <laughs> feels like, you know, 10 years ago, but that, that's crazy. And, and so I'd love to understand maybe, you know, you mentioned the, the experience you've had in the hospitality space. I think that's such a great way to, you know, get that insight, see that pain point and maybe spark that idea. Was Tables the, the the first startup you had, or have you had other kind of startups? And I'd love to maybe you know walk people through your journey of what what led to Tables. Yeah, I keep you know I keep mentioning this notion of like farm to table, and it is something very near and dear to my heart. Um, and I for well for I will always um, prefer and rank great scratch kitchens over for my jo- choice of dining, just because I, I fundamentally believe in what it does for our economy. Um, when we procure the right ingredients and from the right people. So my first, you know, although I, I, I do have a degree in international economics and econometrics, which you can really tell why tables has come to be my love of hospitality right. and my fascination with economics and restaurant economics. But the first one, yeah, I had, I had a project that I started called Transparent Kitchen. Um, it was a real first time founder journey. I saved up $18,000 of my server busboy tip money. I paid off my student loan. I was, you know, felt like I was way ahead of my friends in that regard. I was always a very frugal kid. Um, but you know, $18,000, there's a lot of beer money for a 23, four year old. It's not a lot of tech money (laughs) you you learn quick, but somehow we made it way further than we should have. Um, and the quick premise there is uh, I got very fascinated with the storytelling of the ingredients. So we essentially built um, still to this day, I think shout out to my friends over at pop menu. They, uh, you know, they've really built an awesome system for menu management and websites. And I love it, but we essentially tried to build it an interactive visual menu for the restaurant's website. And the thesis was, you know, in 2015, um, every single restaurant has just takes their paper menu and puts as a PDF online. Mm-hmm. And what a boring experience that is very similar. Yeah. You can see the parallels now with reservations and the things we've learned from that. But, um, you know, when you look at a black cod hand caught, you know, or, or this chicken, you know, the classic Portlandia episode, the chicken name Hank or whatever, where he knows they want to know exactly where it comes from. Well, you know, I was one of those people and I still am. And, and I really care, especially where my animal proteins come from. Um, and, but, you know, it's amazing to know that this restaurant's buying, you know, the, the mushrooms from local farm or this, this, mm. and, you know, these, these local veggies grown on the rooftop, like people want to know and they care. Now, the thing there is we created this crazy interactive menu where you could see not only the chicken dish, but even where the chicken came from and which suppliers. And we were even getting to that level of like granularity of visual wow. storytelling. Um, and it was amazing. We ended up working with hundreds of restaurants in Seattle, Minneapolis, and Toronto region. Um, dozens of suppliers as we started connecting in their supply chain into the menu. Um, what I learned very quickly is, although there are millions of people like me that really care where their food comes from, um, is that a sufficient bar to create something like that from a venture back or business? How do you charge the restaurant for this? How do you connect that storytelling to real bottom line? 
And these are a lot of the questions that are really tough. And I think most uh, succinctly expressed in the concept of a nice to have versus a need. Mm -hmm. So all this is a very great nice to have and chefs really, really cared about it. Well, I've said maybe chef driven restaurants. Well, where does that fall for some of the bigger restaurants? And by the way, some of those bigger restaurants that might only procure 20% of good products and 80% might be, you know, in the questionable or standard, you right. know, let's not say they're evil, but like, you know, there's no story there. You're just buying Cisco rice, you know, right. Well, where does that fall? So all of a sudden you start realizing, you know, market share, you don't want to end up as a founder. You don't want to greenwash. You don't want to just pretend just to, to pull up numbers. So it's very, it's very interesting that, that when you're in, I would call it more social enterprise or ethics and business clash. Um, the niche we did find though was definitely allergies and I would call them picky diners. Like 19% <laughs> of adults now have an allergy, whether it's right. real or imagined. Right. Gluten, um, gluten intolerance is exactly is popping right. up the last 10 years or so. So, Hey, if you're in that category, one in five people that, you know, maybe you don't care about the ethics, but you really don't want to eat gluten. Well, this, that was a really good software for them. So, that was it. A lot of lessons there. You know, we got up to one 1.4 million users and hundreds of restaurants. Wow. Like we had traction, just, you know, classic That's question. Awesome, Could we figure out how to make money from that? <laughs> right, right. But you know what? It's it, it's funny because, you know, before Whisk, I've had other startups um, failed. Most of them failed. But, uh, you know, when I say startups, I don't just mean oh, I tried it like similar to you, like really went deep, spent years, money, team, you know, and kind of failed or at least didn't take off where I wanted it to. But if I think about all the learnings that I got during that, those years and then applied to WISC, it's crazy. And even now, I like like I was talking to somebody the other day and I was telling them, if I were to redo WISC with what I know now, like all just the tech and startup and raising capital and hiring mistakes and you, know, you name it, um, I could probably do what I did in you know seven years now it's been technically since I started, probably do it in like two years. You know, and it, yeah, it's it's yeah. those lessons that you're able to learn. So, yeah, I, I guess that's a big part of it, right? You take what you learn, applied it to tables, and it's par probably part of the reason that tables is gaining traction and, and you're seeing that success, right? It, it is. We definitely, you know, there's a few things, two, I guess, success, success metrics that, you know, were very observable. One was just the building the alpha MVP, you know. It was hard to even say in that first business, it took us a year to two, honestly, to have something that was functional that a, 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 like not just the pilot restaurant, but the second and third could adopt mm. in the same way. So whatever alpha beta you want to call that. Um, in this case, it only took us six weeks. Like it really was like a significant observable difference of time and energy to get something that multiple restaurants could use simultaneously pretty quickly. Um, and then, and then, yeah, certainly decisions around what type of like that identification again of, of a what you are and why that matters. And what I mean by this is like, we clearly are a one-sided marketplace today. And that is very important for those that, that understand technology because, you know, we don't have the Uber Airbnb classic two-sided marketplace issue where do we have enough drivers? Do we have enough restaurants? You know, do we have enough users? Well, the great thing is we're just putting it right at the, the, the point of interaction of reservations. So we don't have to go out and spend millions of dollars attracting people to download tables today. And that was so important because if I, I fundamentally believe just we just wouldn't even have anything off the ground. Imagine so you in a restaurant, I go to you and say, hey, by the way, this is the one of the most significant user behavior shifts you probably will ever experience in your restaurant. 
good news, it's free. Good news, it makes you a ton of money. Good news, it's all driven by consumers. So that makes it a lot less scary than getting in a stranger's car in Uber. Right. But imagine you do this with me and I said, maybe in six, nine months, I'll get my first table. Right. Because I got to attract the users. Like, I don't think that would ever. Right. We, you know the obstacles you face with restaurants like that plus that equals yeah. no game. Yeah. I think this is the only way we're able to go to market. And then eventually, hey, I think we have a, a real shot. Like already the business is selling tens and tens of thousands of dollars of tables per week, per month. And it's growing every, um, every, every day. But, you know, there's a whole other prize at the end of this rainbow that is pretty cool. And I think our capital partners in our restaurants are really get it today as early adopters. They, they see it, too. That's awesome. And so if I, you know, I, as you know, right, Whisk, we deal with thousands of restaurants as well. But we we help with what you alluded to, which is the cogs. Right. And that, that's been going up with with just costs going up in general and, and supplier relations and all that stuff. So we, we really try to help with that percentage, like you mentioned. Right. You, you sell one hundred dollars. 30% might be just cost of goods, mm -hmm. you know, the other, the other 30 or whatever might be labor. And then you have a bit left over and then you have your operational costs, you, you name it. But, um, I'd love for maybe all the restaurants listening to walk through some of the maybe unit economics. So like, it sounds like a great value prop. So, you know, we kind of walk through the client experience, you go on the website, click on the booking. Do I want a regular reservation or this much better experience where I can choose where I want to sit, et cetera, et cetera, at a fee. Great. Now, what does the restaurant, you know, side look like? So if I'm a restaurateur, I own a restaurant, I know I have some key, you know, real estate in terms of tables. Walk me through that process. Yeah. First and foremost, we're chatting with restaurants. I'll, ease, I'll, I'll quite quickly try to ease their initial fear. I don't know what's in the in the micula. I don't know what part of the brain it is, but the place that, that, that sends all those those chemicals rushing forward. Um, and, and the premise here is I, I, I too have managed, you know, a number of restaurants and, and it is a Tetris game as a joke. So the first fear we always get is like, my God, we give away a table, the whole house of cards comes crumbling down. And, and of course it doesn't. Um, and there's a few reasons, uh, we really focus, although there are like very specific, unique tables, um, that we, we highly covet and they should too. Um, because there's like, let's say this one corner spot that's unlike anything else in the restaurant. Well guess what? Like you should use that. There's two ways to look at it. You either look at it as like this, we, sh we should revenue maximize this table to its fullest extent, or that is the one sacred table we only ever give away to our, I call them super VIPs. Mm -hmm. And honestly, both are fine with us because if it's not that, if it's that one guarded sacred real estate and you need it for whatever super VIP, that's fine with us. If you're that type of restaurant, guess what? We know there's gonna be 10 other tables that are highly coveted. So um, from there, we move into what we call sort of these cluster sections. So take a standard restaurant. You can picture it any, like the six tables along the window, the four booths carved out on the one wall. Well, what we're really narrowing in on is that our user base doesn't care if it's that table or that one. They just want to be along that cluster, like the booth side by side. There's no real differentiated experience between mm -hmm. this booth and this booth, but they want that wall. They want that window selection. And so that gives our operators like, all the operational flexibility of the world, plus they get the revenue component. So this was probably our biggest lesson over the year. And what we go in with these operators, we just say, hey, okay, let's identify these key sections. They have different functions of value. We consult on that. We offer them a whole host of data that we're learning from all of our other partners. It's definitely, you know, think of it crowdsourced all of this data information. You know, you're in Mid Midtown Manhattan versus 
little Havana in Cuba or in, in, um, in Miami, like, you know, there, there's different functions that we're learning and, and it's great. So um, from there, it's pretty simple. Like they, we just price the, we shoot the restaurant, we create the sections, we price it, we, we, people can upgrade. And this is probably the last most important piece for the operator. They keep their existing reservation system. So you have open table, you have seven rooms, no problem to us. You, we have no pony in that race. You pick the system that's best for you. And then tables puts that reservation right into your system. So when your GM shows up at 2 p.m., noon, whatever, off for shift or in your team, host team, well, the tables table is already at the specific location. And so there's no dragging and dropping. We see so many operators now using multiple reservation systems. They're manually recreating reservations in another system. This is the best part. We're like a, a, a digital and physical concierge behind the scenes. Um, and it's only going to get smarter and better as we, we pursue even deeper integrations with these partners. But um, we really mean it when it's just, it goes live and people upgrade and it goes into your system. Yeah. And it, and it does make it make a massive difference. I remember when you got, you know, speaking of Little Havana in, in Miami, when you guys got uh, Cafe La Trova, place I, I frequent once in a while. Um, awesome vibe. I think they're top 50 best bars in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So they have a great yeah. cocktail program, great food. But I remember, you know, every time I go, they got live music. It's a really good vibe. And um, it's funny because the day you got it, I was like, this is such a good fit. I mean, there's many different scenarios, but it, I was like, this yeah, is perfect for sure. tables because you want to sit in the right spot when there's that live music and just the ambiance of that place. So it, it really resonates. And I think one of the big things, at least in my opinion, about tables is once you interact with it, right? So it's like, it's one thing they hear about it, but if people actually go example on Cafe de Trova or go to one of the restaurants you partner with and they actually see it, I find it makes all the difference, you know, kind of For sure. pictures worth a thousand words. Like I remember when I saw it, I was like, wow, this is great. I can see where I want to sit and it, and it, it just speaks volumes to the, the customer experience of like how, how refreshing it is to have that, you know, capability. So, um, that's awesome. Um, I think one of the things I'd love to maybe walk through is so, you know, from the restaurant's point of view, I think at least from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the risk is pretty low. There's no switching costs because they're using the, the regular reservation system, which is awesome. One less hurdle and thing mm -hmm. for the restaurants to worry about. Um, so what is, what does the onboarding look like? Right? So you, you, you get to a restaurant and they're like, Hey, Fraser, this sounds pretty cool. I want to try it. What, what happens? What, walk me through it. You know, what happens next? Yeah, it's very straightforward. Again, um, we just need a clean, we say uh, camera ready dining room. So, you know, make sure your mop bucket isn't sitting next to the bar and, and make sure the tables are correct. You know, for definitely some of the early operators, we, mm. we can't make it to all the shoots ourselves. Like we the great news is we have people coming around, you know, we're getting inbounds from Europe now too. And we're not going to be able to have, you know, myself or my team on the ground, but you know, we, we've already been there helping straighten the linen and the, the knives and making sure their candles are lit because it doesn't matter. It's like this camera, they're 4k, they, they pick up their every little detail. And that's what you want because these, the restaurants we're working with, whether it's again, a sports bar to really experiential or fine dining, like they have invested likely low millions, if not more into the, the aesthetic of their space. And it's pretty crazy to me again, someone who just spent, let's say $2 million renovating their restaurant has an open table widget, like not really the experience and good luck still today with all of the trillions of photos we take of restaurants and food, 
how to find like a half decent interior photo of a restaurant in 2023. It's like the most bizarre thing in my mind ever sure. that, that they, even Google can't extract the right content of the dining room. So, um, so this is, there's a lot of value there. So really it's just about getting the place clean, ready to go. We shoot it. We can do it at night. So a lot of candlelit, so we can do it during the day. We really try to mirror that vibe. In some yeah. cases we've done winter and summer shoots. Some cases we've had night and so we get to work with the restaurants in that way. Um, and then, you know, the rest of it is sort of what we addressed in the last question where, Hey, we make some recommendations, those window tables, those booths, but most GMs, most operators already know inherently. We just, we like to say, we just make those little bit of tweaks for them, push them in this direction, that direction, based on what we're seeing, because this is the first time they've ever had to think of this, it this way. Um, and we generally start them off with maybe lower, lower prices in the 12 to $20 range or 20, 30. And then what we're seeing is systematically with certain properties, we just start slowly creeping it higher. There's always a logical point. We still want to make sure, by the way, like 5 p.m. flip times, we highly encourage those are free because we see those at this elasticity point. Well, we're certainly not charging Monday at 5 p.m. versus Saturday at 7. What a different right. function of demand. But even maybe it's Saturday at, at 5 for a restaurant that is very busy. Well, what if we use that pricing psychology, that elasticity of demand, which is called in economics, to say, oh, well, if I come in at 5, I get the best table for free. But if I come in at 6.30, A, it's likely booked up, but, you know, I get it. So for those more, you know, for those people that are willing to move, but then we see what's really interesting. There's time and data where let's say it's 20 bucks at 5.45 or sorry, free at 5.45 and 20 bucks at 6. Like you think, oh, why wouldn't you just go 15 minutes early? And the amount of people just book 6 because that's when they want to come in and price isn't an object. Like this is where we're going, you know, really trying to impart on that restaurant. So you just got to shoot it. And we help you with it and then it just goes on your website um i know every re every restaurant tech says there's a three-step process it sounds like such a cliche but um <laughs> you know I, I think ours actually is so that's awesome and so once it's on the site they can decide you know how many days how many tables so they can e ease into it if they want let certain days open let certain times open and then what's been the the, the reaction so once people I'm imagining the the first time, you know, maybe a, a restaurant owner or operator gets gets that booking. What, what's that like for them? You know, I'll be honest, I, I think they, you know, we're at the stage right now where they're just like, please don't go wrong, right? Like, and, and I'll be I'll be brutally honest because it's so new, and their psychology is like, no, no complaints is a is a good thing because there's you know this initial reactions are just. And, and I say it frankly, like the, the industry operates at such a position of fear generally, right? Like we would, we, even if we know we're running out of money, we would rather just like put our head down and hope for the best. So, so I get it. I'm from the industry. We operate from that position and we recognize that a lot of this is hand, like hand holding. And then, you know what happens by a weekend, by two weeks in, by a month, it's like, oh, I get it. This just sort of runs behind the scenes. The reservations end up in our system. Oh, our first paycheck. Oh, we just made a thousand this month. We made two. Oh my, this is new to me. I'm getting checks from my technology provider <laughs> every every month with no cost of goods. Like, so, you know, it's going to take a while to build Rome here. We get it. We're working with our first 20 really good hospitality groups that own a couple hundred properties. You know, they're start with one and they had two, then they had five. And, you know, we have some really, really big groups now sniffing around global brand names. Um, but we know we're no, they're not, everyone's willing to be in that first adopter. Right. And so we really, you know, we're really grateful for some of these incredible groups like Cafe La Trova 
like LDV Scarpetta American Cut and Mercer Street. And, you know, there's there's some in good company hospitality here in New York has been such an incredible partner with us with Refinery Rooftop. And and you just see like these early adopters and they're already like now they're adding group bookings. So, hey, like try to get a 10 top in New York or Chicago and Miami. Like good luck. Yeah. Because open, open table caps out at seven. Right. And then you get into this weird, ambiguous private event space of like 35 yeah. plus. So like just 12 friends going out for dinner is like the Olympics in most major cities um, trying to so get a true. table. So I think we have some really interesting areas to fill, but we just want to make sure, as you said, that first reaction, guys, it's going to be okay. You know, we're not going to bat a hundred percent. There's going to be a hiccup here, but right now we're batting like 99. So, mm. you know, let, let's, let's keep that up. And we're only, it's only going to get stronger year over year. That's awesome. It's it's so true. I never thought about the the you know plus ending, but but now that you mentioned, it, I was kind of smiling because I was just realizing it's happened to me where it's like that you're in that awkward zone of you're right whether it's open table or another system. It's like hey, I can't do more than seven or eight, and then you go to the website and there's a whole kind of private event email this person who's typically going to be available more of a nine to five. So you're kind yeah. of like in this weird in between zone. Um, so it's it's super interesting. Uh, and I, and I wanted to ask you is how is you find that there's like, um, I'm just thinking of this out loud now, but I would imagine there's maybe some type of referral, natural referral that happens, not just from the restaurant size. Cause I know the restaurants are close and you know, they, they usually recommend what tech they're using and, and then things grow like that. But what about from the client side? Like if someone booked at a restaurant and had that good experience, do you think there's a likelihood that when they frequent a restaurant, maybe they know better, they're bringing that up. Do you, have you seen any kind of referrals come from that side? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, we're going on 30, maybe even more now, 30, 40,000 guests have used tables at wow. this point. And, and if you think of where we start, like, <laughs> so it took us from January 1st, 2022 to June 1st, 2022 to sell our first $10,000 worth of tables and do our first like X thousands of booking. Um, and we did that last week alone. So, oh, like, wow. you know, there's a compounding nature to this whole thing. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, you know, we're just out of COVID. Like, I think people in the life cycle of our industry, um, you know, some of our hometown markets back up in Canada, you know, Toronto was literally on government lockdown on February 17th, 2022, right? You know, New York was still in restricted capacity in March. Like we were only a little over a year into this. So it's really cool to see what is you know, 2023 was a real you know, 2022 was like PDSD, we survived. 2023 was maybe our coming out party. And, you know, 2024 is, I think we'll see some real compound, you know, compounding, um, you know, hopefully outcomes to our results or from our actions. So to that point, like, man, I could, I could talk to you all day about where I would love to see our cons consume, like our user, our guest interactions happen. You know, I'm going to say a few things around, maybe not directly about referrals, but you know, we have a we have a property here in, in Manhattan where uh, we shot it at sunset because the amount of people the demand to go for sunset to watch mm -hmm. the, it set over the Empire State is incredible, right? And I want to get think of the psychology. Like right now, you make a booking, maybe just you know for six p.m. because you know that's when you're hungry and want to go out to eat. So there's a whole category of people that just browse and they're just like, oh, do you want hey sweetie, do you want a burger tonight or do you want your pizza, right? Then there's this category of like destination restaurants, which drive a huge portion. It's like, no, I want to go to this restaurant tonight. It's right. not this because I'm hungry. I'm trying to get this reservation. But like, what is that next category? Like, where do you take discovery? Well, hey, like, think of what Airbnb is doing in travel. 
oh, you want to stay in an igloo tonight? You want to stay in a castle tonight? Like they're pushing the boundaries of what happens, right? So what does that mean for dining? Hey, do you want to go see the sunset with a glass of sparkling in our hands? Like what a beautiful experience. Do you want to go, hey, we'll do a great brunch along a, a seaside? Like we, we do that maybe subconsciously, but right. if tables could make that a far different experience than 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. widget, I think we could radically change. And guess what? We have all the 4K scans of all the real estate. So, you know, when I think we get there from group bookings to these experiences, we do have inherent network effects that are in our favor. And I think when we start really getting out there, they're just going to start compounding, um, which I'm really excited for. That's awesome, man. That's a, and, and I definitely can see that happening. Um, as you're mentioning Sunset, I'm thinking of just my, even my own kind of bookings. Uh, when I have friends visit me in Miami, you know, one of the things that, oh, we, go, we should go to this, but one of our clients, we should go to this sunset. We have a sunset menu and they got a beautiful view of the, the water. Yeah. So it's like, we, we know that's a spot. And if it's a weekend and, you know, we know another good spot that's like in a state park and it's got an unobstructed view of the, the sun, yeah. uh, sunset because it's literally on the, on the water. So it's so true that subconsciously we're doing that anyway. So making it easier to do that makes, makes a ton of sense. So where would you like to see, you know, tables next year i mean i'm obviously growth in terms of restaurants but i'd love to kind of hear you know if, if you want share share your vision of what's what's next for tables you know as growth keeps compounding yeah on, on the product side and that guest experience it's the everything is about that the differentiation between maybe one experience to the next so what makes this restaurant special both at the high level, but then what makes it really like, what is the thing you can table or the, the time of day? So let's just throw this whole category of vibe and differentiation. So I want to get to the point where you can even click on, like, not only are you on the table, but I want to see what the vibe is at 5 PM, 7 PM versus 10 PM. And I think we can get there before any other platform can, which is really, really exciting. Um, so that's where I want to see it go on that end and just make this the most experiential booking experience anyone's ever seen it already is certainly I can probably safely say that already but I think we're again only 20% of the way there into making it to what it could be um, and then you know who knows like what's going to happen with all of these new visual ways that you know Apple's announcing products right. like you know when we look two three years from now well like this thing changed everything 10 years ago now we're going on 15 but like what's the next realm and, and certainly I think we're in the right position. We don't know where that's going to go, but maybe you have something that connects that you then walk through that dining room and say, you can pick that table versus again, a widget that says 6 PM or 8 PM. So right. I'm excited for that. I think in the next year, let's just start with stuff that already exists, bringing in video content, bringing in vibe content, making what a lot of our operators have said, bridging the reality to their digital guest experience. So what's going to happen when you get there? Well, guess what? You can have a taste of that. It's never going to replicate, right? Go to Cafe La Trova. We can put a video of people dancing to that amazing music and eating that incredible. I, I've dined there twice now. Just honestly, the, some of the best food I've ever eaten. Um, that's never going to be replaced. And that's why you and I love the hospitality biz. You know, right. that's why I'm not in crypto or I'm not in AI. Right? I am not smart enough to be an AI, but that's <laughs> definitely why I'm not in it. Is, is actually there's a human element that I don't think will ever be replaced in our industry. And, and, and I think that's still what keeps a lot of us in it. So, um, and then on the restaurant side, you know, things always, they never go as fast as you want. And I could say I want a thousand partners by next year. Of course it's, you know, we're, we're going to still grow at the pace that, that, that we can. 
Um, but it really starts, you know, in this business with relationships. And, you know, we have, again, it's not nothing to sneeze at beginning with 20 amazing hospitality groups and growing from there. And as you said, making sure that the initial value they saw is accurate, which you know, certainly is, they're not taking properties, they're adding and making sure that their, their friends see what they saw. And if, yeah, you weren't that first adopter, you're the second adopter, well, no problem right. to us. That's totally fine. Let, let's, let's, let's get there. And, and that's how I see it. So it's, it's, again, it's going to be a psychological battle for operators, just making sure they're comfortable. Although as we described in this call today, all these benefits, free money, get better guest experience, well, you know, it doesn't mean you can just snap your fingers and, and do that. And then on the guest side, just making this the most beautiful interactive tool that you've ever, ever seen for booking your next dining experience. I love it, man. Very well said. So maybe just to end off. So for people that, you know, just to reiterate for people who want to find you for restaurants who want to, you know, learn more, sign up, maybe try, tell me, where can they find you? What's the process look like if they want to maybe, you know, sign up and then, yeah, I'd love to kind of share that with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Go to our website, tablz.com, tablz for our, our connects to the north there. Um, and uh, it's, you know, go there. There's a few sort of samples of some of our, our, our partners that are using it really well. But, you know, I will say, sorry, sorry, all the diners out there. Um, we don't have like a marketplace today where mm -hmm. you can browse all the tables. Um, that, that's strategic. We plan that. But for definitely for operators, um, come check it out, use it. It's free to join, shoot us a message in the contact, say hi to Angelo, get him to bug, bug him to get my number. Uh, but no, it's very, very easy. Just Fraser at tables.com. So my first name, um, and there's, there's no shortage of ways to, to get a hold of us. So, um, certainly we would love to love to have you if you're a great restaurant doing great things and have a beautiful dining room. So amazing thank you for sharing that well guys you heard it here tables.com changing the game when it comes to reservations for restaurants here with the ceo and founder fraser fraser thanks for being here today thanks brother thanks for having me on feel free to check out wist.ai for more resources and schedule a demo with one of our product specialists to see if it's a fit for you